we're basically continuing on. We started a series two weeks ago at Colossae Tiger through the book of Genesis, and so we're just going to pick up right where we are in our series through Genesis. We'll be covering most of like chapter two from four all the way on through chapter four in Genesis. Um, if you were here, uh, or not here, nobody was here last week. <laughs> If you were here last week, you were early, way early. Um, no, if you were at Tigard last week, though, um, you would have heard Chuck point out a really important perspective for us to keep when we're reading Genesis. Um, I think oftentimes, I'll try to get some feedback here. Um, ancient Israel, when they're reading the book of Genesis, in fact, even in modern Israel today, they read it a lot differently than we tend to read it now. We tend to look at this book with our post-enlightenment, modern, scientific lenses on, and we get so focused on a lot of the details of Genesis, like how things happened and when things happened and, and all of this scientific data, that we tend to miss the message that the author, Moses, is trying to give us. Um, we get so caught up in these debates of like, okay, when, when did creation actually happen? Was it billions and billions of years ago, or was it thousands of years ago? And the conversations go on and on and on and on, and the debate has endlessly gone on. Or we, we talk about, was it actually six literal days of creation or six figurative days of creation? And again, the d- debates continue, and really none of those questions actually entered into the mind of the audience that Moses was intending to write to. They didn't care about those things. They didn't think about those things. They weren't so focused on when creation happened or how creation happened, really what mattered to them, and I think what Moses is wanting to tell us is why it happened. This is the story that Moses is telling us of God forming creation and all of us being a part of it. And in that story that he's telling us, it's not the details. The details are fun to explore. I'm not going to lie. Some, sometimes it's fun to really, like, philosophize and explore the details and, and scientific data behind creation, But if we get so hung up on the details of creation, we can miss the main point. We can miss the main idea of the story that we're supposed to learn. It's kind of like if I were to tell you a story of when I was a kid, if I was to tell you like the most or one of the most shaping stories of my life, um, when I was eight years old, I'll just kind of paraphrase the story for you, but when I was eight years old, uh, my brothers and I, we left the broken environment and home that we grew up in, and we went to go live with our grandparents for a few years. And in this story, this is a true story, my brother and I were given BMX bikes, and we loved them, you know, as boys. I was, you know, eight. He was like 10. We'd be riding our bikes all over the neighborhood. And as boys can tend to do, at least we did, we would always push the boundaries of where we were actually supposed to ride our bikes. And we would end up in neighborhoods that, well, we're a little farther than we we're supposed to go. And then one day, my older brother, two years older than me, he came, came tearing down the street saying, I just saw the most amazing thing. You have to follow me. Come, watch. <laughs> Come follow me now. And he just tore off back the other way. And so I had to make a choice. Should I follow him or should I, should I stay here? You know how older brothers are. They can tend to play pranks. And so I wasn't sure. Is this a prank or did he really see something cool? Okay, I decided to be brave and follow my brother. And I followed him street after street after street after street around corner after corner, way further than we were supposed to go. He ended up going to this bush. 
um, which was along the fence line, pushed his bike through the bush where there was a rip, like a tear in the chain link fence, pushed his bike through the fence, and then we were there on a five-lane freeway running through the Bay Area in California in Palo Alto called the Bayshore Freeway. Then proceeded to get on his bike and go to the, up the freeway on the shoulder there, cars buzzing by, and up to this overpass, and then parked his bike on the overpass of the freeway. And I thought, oh my gosh, if this is a prank, this is going to be the last one because I think I'm going to die. I'm just, I'm an eight-year-old kid for crying out loud. And he climbs off his bike and climbs down under the freeway. And I followed him. And as soon as I climbed down to look under the freeway, there it was, the most amazing place for any childhood playground to exist. It was this irrigation canal that was loaded with catfish and carp and giant bullfrogs. We ended up spending most of our childhood under the Bayshore Freeway. I'm not kidding you. We weren't thinking like this is where bums camp out. We were thinking like this is where bullfrogs exist. And we had the... Now, if I'm telling that story to someone and they stop me and they say, what kind of bike were you riding? I was riding a Diamondback BMX bike. What color was it? It was turquoise. Well, isn't that a girl's color? No, not in the 80s. The 80s, every color was cool. <laughs> turquoise was really cool in the 80s. Or, and they just literally, okay, well, what kind of spokes? Did it have mag tires or did it have metal spokes? I, we couldn't afford mag tires. It had metal, and they go on and on about the details of the bike. Then they can miss the main point of the story. And the main point of the story is that was actually a life-changing moment for me because it was that experience that kept a thread um, that enabled me to continue on a relationship with my brother. That was really the one thread that kept our relationship together through all sorts of adversities. And not only that, it was that experience that taught this insecure, timid kid to actually step out and be bold in life. And those are the stories that I learned, or the, the, the messages I learned through that story, but if somebody gets so caught up in how I got there, then they, you, I'm belaboring the point. But you guys get, we read Genesis and we can't get so focused on the details that we miss the main message of the story. And Moses is telling us something really, God through Moses is telling us something really profound through Genesis. And so I kind of want to unpack it. Let's unpack the story and catch the meaning of what God is telling us through this. And so what we've actually done is we've actually divided the story. I have a slide. We've kind of divided the story up into a chart just to even make it a little bit easier to grasp. Um, that's not the chart. Do we have the chart? We don't have the chart. Never mind. Forget the chart. Um, I'll tell you the chart and show you the chart next week. But we've basically, we've, if I can remember the chart now, because I don't have the chart either. Um, but we've kind of divided the whole book up into three different sections. The first section is Genesis 1 through 6-ish, 8, 6-8, eight. Eight. there we go, which is basically God's invitation for us to join. He created the world. He created us, and then he invited us into relationship with him, and it's all this beautiful invita invitation for us to be in relationship with God in his beautiful, beautifully created world. Right, and then the, cent, the kind of the, the next few chapters of the book is 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 a real disruption with 
the way humanity is supposed to be and the way creation is supposed to be. And we're going to take a look at those chapters together. And then the rest, of, what, what's, what's the chapter break there? I can't remember. Does it? 6, 9, see, Chuck studies a lot more than I do. <laughs> Remembers better. You taught it today. And you had it sharp. <laughs> and then, but the cool part about the book of Genesis, the rest of the story is um, basically God putting the building blocks back together um, for his overarching plan of redemption. And so there's so much that we can glean from the story. Today, we're going to take our text, though, from chapter 2 verse 4, all the way through chapter 4. And I'm not going to read, of course, all of those scriptures. I'm just going to hit on some key passages. And by the way, kids are in here, which I actually really like that. We're going to set up some grade school classes here down the road as soon as we can. But do not be apologetic if your kids are noisy. Seriously. I'm a, I mean, I've been a children's pastor for ages. I, I, I don't mind the noise. I've got four. I live in noise. Okay? So don't even worry about that. Um, But what I've done with these passages that we're going to look at today is I have divided them into three really, really essential and important themes that we can glean from. From chapter 2, 4, all the way on through chapter 4, I've kind of divided it up into three themes. And that's the slide that we have. The first theme is God's perfect creation from chapter 2, 4 to 14. And then the next theme that we're going to glean from today is man's purpose and God's protection that we see in 2.15 to 25. And then the last theme that we learn from our passages today are um, the plight of man, chapter 3 and 4. And so I want to first just start off with God's perfect creation, um, chapter 2, um, verse 4 to 14. And when I say God's perfect creation, I don't want us to think that God created the world like it was finished. Because he actually, the perfect, the idea of perfect creation is that it wasn't finished. He actually created the world to be cultivated and to be developed. And, and we get to steward with him in that developing of the created world that he made. So it wasn't finished, but it was perfectly made the way that God intended it to be made. There was, in other words, there was shalom. You guys know what the word shalom is? It's, I think all of us are familiar with that. It's the word that peace. I just saw a peace symbol go up. Um, it's the word that the Jews use when they say peace. But the Hebrew meaning behind the word shalom, there is so much depth to it. There's so much richness to shalom. When God created the world, there was shalom. And it means that there was everything was, everything was well and good with the world. Everything was the way that it was supposed to be. One of my favorite authors says it like this. He says, Shalom. This is Cornelius Planting, a junior. He says, in the Bible, Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. That's God's created world. There was shalom. It was the way that it was supposed to be. And then something happened. Of course, we'll get there. But I just love to imagine what God's perfect creation must have looked like. I mean, I actually, I had Marcus pull some pictures together to throw us 
on, not, I can't give you a picture of God's perfect creation, but I can give you some amazing pictures just to kind of help us to imagine what in the world the created world. Hi, Casey. Good to see you. Um, look at this. I don't know where this is, but it's amazing. Look at that. This is why I love to travel, to see things like this. Oh, just, I don't even have words. Let's just look. <laughs> One more. That's the view from my backyard, <laughs> my patio. <laughs> I wish. New creation. Um, but, okay, so look at these images, and then imagine this is the broken world. Can you imagine what it was like when there was total shalom, when everything was actually the way that it's supposed to be? Oh, my gosh. It must have been absolutely mind-blowingly spectacular. So, anyways, that's kind of the first theme that we see in Genesis 2 in, these, in this passage that we're going to cover today. But then the next piece is our purpose and God's protection. And in this passage, and I'm going to throw some scriptures together too, because um, this next theme we can glean a lot from. In fact, I think this piece of scripture that we're going to look into right now which explains, and Moses is telling us this in, our, in, in this story, what our purpose is, and then God's protection for that purpose is absolutely critical to understanding humanity. It really is. In fact, I think in this piece of scripture that we're looking at, there really is the secret to success, the secret to happiness. In this piece of scripture, Genesis chapter 2, um, and different pieces of Genesis chapter 1, we have the answer to the greatest philosophical question of all time. We have an answer to the question that, that the m most brilliant minds and philosophers used to spend countless hours trying to answer, countless years, lifetimes, and generations trying to answer this one question if they would have just read Genesis. They could have saved themselves from a lot of stress and a lot of philosophizing, and probably gone fishing more. <laughs> or at least if they would have read Genesis and held it for its face value. What's the question? I'm talking about this one question. Who are we, and why do we exist? And that's what Moses answers in this passage. I threw some, some scriptures up. This is who we are. Who are we? Genesis 1.27 says who we are, right here. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are God's image bearers. That's who we are. We're made to reflect the likeness and character of God in the world that he created. That's who he made us to be. That's it. That's the answer to the philosophical question of all time. We are God's image bearers. And here's the crazy thing. In the ancient world, people would set up these temples for their gods, lowercase g gods, their, and their false gods, fake gods, whatever, or demonic gods, and they would set up these temples, and then in the temples, they would put idols. And you know what the idols were there for? The idols were there to reflect who the god of that temple was supposed to be. They were to be the image of that particular god. Because you can't see the God. The God is invisible. They set up a temple, and then they place these idols in the temple to show who that God is, to reflect the image of that God. But all that 
is is a poor imitation and a cheap counterfeit of the reality of God building his temple, which is all of creation, and placing his idols, his icons, us, in his temple to bear his image. Isn't that wild? We're his icons. We're his idols. The world is his... Isn't that nuts? It's kind of weird to say we're his idols. Icons is a better way to say it. Image bearers. Everything else is a cheap counterfeit. I think that's why the psalmist in Psalm 145... I don't have the slide up, but I'm going to read it to you. Sorry, 135. He's kind of making fun of the counterfeits. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 135, verse 5. He says, I know that the Lord is great, that our God is greater than all, lowercase g, gods. And then he says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear, nor is their breath in their mouth. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. That's kind of profound. See, the world outside of God has set up these idols for these false gods, but they're not like us. We bear God's image, and God is a living God and a relational God, and we have life and relationship and creativity and all these things as his image bearers. And those people that trust in other idols, they, they, they become like them. If they trust in a, a lifeless idol, really the reality is they become lifeless people. That's crazy. It's wild to think about. Anyways... So that's kind of our purpose. Who are we? And then why do we exist? Next question. Why are we here? Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Like I said before, the creation was made to be developed and stewarded. And then it goes on to say, Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves over the ground. One more slide. Genesis 2.15, from our text today, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. The next part of that philosophical question is, why are we here? We're here to steward the creation that God made. Not only do we really reflect his image in our essence, we also reflect his image in our actions. We're here to steward the creation that he loves, to help him cultivate it and develop it, to use our creativity, which is also in the likeness of him, to make creation awesome. That's why we're here. And to reflect his awesomeness, that's a theological word, his awesomeness, throughout all of creation. That's massive. That's huge. And then... Of course, I'm doing a lot of paraphrasing. I'm doing a lot of summarizing of the story that Moses is telling us. And then we have God's... A lot of us are very familiar with this story. And if you're not, read it. Read the passages that we're covering today. We have God's protection. God's protection in the story of the Garden of Eden. As most of us know, he placed a tree in the garden. And in that tree, was, there was a tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And if they would eat of that tree, of course, they would die. Why did God place the tree in the garden? He placed the tree in the garden because he gave them a choice. Because love always demands a choice. You can't, have, you can't force love. There's got to have a contrary choice if somebody is actually going to love you. And so God gave them a choice. But he protected them by setting them up for success as much as he possibly could by saying, warning them, there's a tree in the garden, don't eat from it. 
I'm warning you. I'm protecting you. I'm setting you up for success. You want to maintain your relationship with me. Don't eat that tree. And what do they do? We know the story. (laughs) But God was protecting them by giving them those warnings. I think all of God's warnings and all of God's laws, all of God's commandments are really centered around our protection, aren't they? And then the third theme, the final one that we see in the passages today is the plight of mankind. That's what we see here. We see humanity plummeting out of control. We see what happens. In fact, I I, kind of broke down a few of the verses in Genesis chapter 3 because this is obviously critical to knowing who we are as broken human beings. It says here in Genesis 3, 1 to 7, read it with me, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree that was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings from themselves And there you have the first shameful experience of humanity. Something went very, very wrong that day. You have Satan coming into the garden, feeding Adam and Eve with all these thoughts of doubt, saying, God's withholding something good from you. And Adam and Eve, what do they do? They decide to buy into this doubt and then act on that doubt, thinking Believing maybe God is withholding something good from me. Maybe he is not out for my total best. And so they eat from the tree of the Garden of Eden, and that one tragic event, because they decided, instead of listening and trusting to God, they decided that they would be the ones that would choose what is good and evil. They wanted that freedom. They wanted that power to choose what was good for them and what was evil for them, and we've been trying to choose that ever since that day and they made the choice and they broke away from God that moment and they died that day but the sad part of the story is not only did they die and I don't mean like ashes to ashes dust to dust death they died in the real essence of the meaning of death and death means separated from God and that day a wedge came in between them and God which is the most tragic event of history and not only did they die that day but all of humanity, the generations that followed, died with them. So then Eve, who was her name, was the mother of all living, sadly became the mother of all dead. And we are born separated from God. That's the tragedy of the story. But then Moses ends it with this. Check this out. And this is the reality of it. But, of course, the beautiful part of this is that it's the beginning of a greater redemptive story that we get to all be a part of. Because if it ends there, then we would not be here, right? Then, here's what Moses says to end this 
chapter 4, he says, Seth kind of goes down the generations after Adam and Eve. And then he says, Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Oh, that's it. That's the end of it. Enosh means mortal. And I think what Moses is telling us here is because of our mortality, which, of course, we all know is a result of the choice that Adam and Eve made, a result of the fall, because of our mortality, we are left calling on the name of the Lord. We're lost, and we're calling on him. And here's the crazy thing about that. This is what I find so interesting is that not only were they calling on the name of the Lord, but I think so many people around the globe today are still calling on the name of the Lord, but don't even realize it. They don't realize that they're calling. The Bible says even all of creation is groaning and longing for redemption, longing for things to be put back together the way that they're supposed to be. And all of us in our deep, deepest parts are calling on the Lord, but we don't even realize we're calling on the Lord. And I think the lie of this world and the wonderful trickery of Satan is to fool us into thinking that our yearning for God and our calling out for him in our souls can be filled by other things, right? You guys have, a lot of us have heard this phrase that says, God, there's a God-shaped void in every single one of us that can only be filled by him. It's true. It's true. But the lie of the world is that other things will fill that. I think of this story in John chapter 4, and I'm going to end with this story, because I think this is a good kind of thought for us to close on. John chapter 4 is an amazing story, and it's a story of this. It's a story of somebody that is longing for Jesus, longing for satisfaction, longing for fulfillment, but trying to fill it with all the wrong things. John chapter 4, Jesus is walking through Samaria. In this epic story, he's scandalizing his disciples. I mean, Jesus is breaking all sorts of religious traditions. One of my favorite things about Jesus is he breaks all sorts of religious traditions. Um, not, but he doesn't do it to be like, you know, subversive or edgy or, you know, confrontational. He, that's not why. Why does Jesus break religious traditions? He does it because he's out for the good of people. Because it was those things that allowed other people to be reunited with who God is, with an awareness of who God is and a relationship with God. So that's the Jesus that breaks religious. Anyways, so here he is in Samaria. The disciples would never have been caught dead in Samaria. A little background, just a smidge of it. The Samaritans were called half-breeds. They were hated and despised by the Jews. They were known as traitors of the actual Jewish heritage. And so for Jesus to take his disciples through Samaria was absolutely preposterous, scandalous. But there they are in Samaria. He talks to this woman at a well, another scandalous moment, Not only is he talking to a Samaritan, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Rabbis never talked to women in public, let alone a Samaritan woman. But historians even go on to tell us that the Samaritan woman was probably despised even amongst the Samaritans, which is why John notes that she was at the well in the middle of the day, because women would tend to draw well in the morning and the evening, but for some reason she couldn't be around the other women. This woman had issues. So, Jesus comes up to her and says, can I have a drink? And she's shocked. What? Why are you talking to a Samaritan? 
What in the world? And then Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you would ask for me, and I'd give you living water. She's like, you don't even have a cup. <laughs> what are you talking about? This is a deep well, and you don't have nearly long enough arms to get this water. And he says, it's such a great story. And he says, no, the water that I give you will never, will make you never thirst again. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. I mean, I'm butchering the passage, but, but you're getting the idea. We're talking about stories today, right? Yeah. And, and, and she's like, I want some of that water. And to never thirst again? Seriously? I want some of that. And then Jesus does something amazing. He hits a nerve. He says, go call your husband. Jesus knew what he was saying. And she's like, oh, I don't, to deflect it, she's like, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you've spoken correctly, you don't have a husband, you've had five husbands. And the guy that, now you know why she wasn't at the well in the morning? <laughs> and the guy that you're with now isn't even your husband. I don't, I guarantee Jesus wasn't saying that condemningly. I guarantee he wasn't trying to shame her, or she was already shamed. She was already judged. She was already condemned by all of society. Jesus was doing something there. He was talking about water that would never make her thirst again, the water of the Holy Spirit. He was talking about the water that would well up into eternal life, the water that he had available once she got into relationship with him. And the stuff that she had been drinking from Man after man after man after man was not cutting it. She was crying out for God, but she didn't know it was God that she was crying out for. And so she was trying to fill it with everything else. Jesus is saying that. He's saying, I'm here now. And you can have what you've been longing for. He was saying what the psalmist says in Psalm 105, he, in 107 verse 9. He says, he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. And that is the beautiful part of the story that we get to be a part of, is that, yes, we lost relationship with him, but Jesus came. And because Jesus came, we can be filled, and we can be reunited, and he can begin to put the pieces back together of who we are supposed to be, and we can actually exist doing what we're supposed to do. That's what we're celebrating. Isn't that awesome? Love it. So I'm going to pray. Then we'll end, because we can have intimacy with God, because he is here, because he is offering us what we need, the longing in our souls, and the cry in our hearts will be answered by him, because he doesn't give up. Oh, I'm so glad we serve a God that doesn't give up. Let's pray, and then we'll end with a couple of worship songs, and then we'll eat.